With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, and joining me is my co-host, Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? Great, men. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Earlier this week, we interviewed Jason Gillespie for the podcast, and we were able to take a deep dive into his playing career. So for all the listeners out there, here's the full interview with Jason Gillespie. Enjoy. Well, that's by Didn't make any difference. That's his first test wicket as well. He's knocked the stumps all over the place. He nearly got him caught, and now he's comprehensively bowled him out. Well, there may be a shortage of runs today, but there's no shortage of incident. It's been fascinating all day long. And now Gillespie has made one mark on the game. He's done very well in this his debut match. That's a beauty. Absolute cracker that pitched about middle and off and hit the outside of off. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. That was our next guest taking his very first test wicket, Jason Gillespie, he played 71 tests, 97 one-day internationals. He's eighth on the list of Australian test wicket-takers with 259, and he scored three first-class centuries. Jason Gillespie, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back. I had a fascinating discussion with you last summer about coaching, and I thought maybe in this chat we could sort of do a little bit of a deep dive into some of your playing experiences. Yeah, oh, look, happy to happy to uh, have a chat about um, about the playing career. That's for sure. Um, look, I thoroughly enjoyed playing. I thoroughly enjoyed coaching, and 
like doing a bit of commentary as well. So it's all, uh, I just love cricket, really, to be totally honest. Yeah, you've had a, just another week in the life of Jason Gillespie. You were coaching the PM's 11 in Canberra during the week, and then you went from there to being on ABC Grandstand Radio covering the T20. Now you're off to coach the Strikers. Um, you seem to have a pretty uh, full-on life. Oh, look, I have. It's a lot of fun. I, I coach Sussex in the county championship, which is which is a role I really enjoy. You know, so I do that over the, the Australian uh, autumn and winter. Um, and then I, I get back for spring and summer in Australia. And, uh, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to coach Adelaide Strikers. PM's 11 was, was a lot of fun. It was just for a couple of days there in Canberra. And outside of that, yeah, bits and bobs, just did a bit of work. I did a little bit for Channel 7 last year and, uh, and ABC. And I'm going to be doing a little bit for ABC Grandstand this year, um, which is which is which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, it's funny because uh, me and Paul were talking over the weekend that when you started playing cricket for Australia, you were so shy with the media. I think you hardly did an interview in the early days. Yeah, but, look, that was more. I I was so worried about saying something wrong. Uh, it wasn't necessarily like out and out shyness. It was more. I didn't want to give anyone any reason to think that I was either disrespecting the game or opposition or anything by saying something silly. So I just thought, you know, well, I, I just want to establish myself. You know, I'd had, I had a bit of a stop-start career early, early on because I, I had a number of injuries and things like that. So I, I pretty much just wanted to just be left to just bowl cricket balls and then play the game. And then, I, you know, once I, I felt more comfortable and more... Comfortable my own body because, as I said, I had a few injuries and, and more comfortable in and around the team. Then I'd kind of relax a little bit and, and be a bit more open in the in the media. Yeah, uh, well, certainly you've got a very successful media career now in hot demand. Um, but before we just sort of get into your early playing days, I want to ask you a question that's bothered me. Um, you know, when you were playing, you pioneered a method of bowling, and I called it the Gillespie Goose. It was where you'd sort of flap your arms around just before you sort of bowled as you ran in to kind of distract the batsman. I, I just wonder why that hasn't taken off in T20 cricket. Well, you actually can't do it. Um, I, I remember I was at the middle once and I was told by Steve Davis, uh, an umpire, a good friend of mine, that uh, you can't do that because you're distracting the batsman. And I I went back to him and I said, well, Steve, uh, I, um, mate, when, he, when the batsman starts charging me before I've bowled the ball, I'm, he's distracting me. So are you going to tell him to stop that? Uh, that didn't really wash. So the condor sort of finished before it really started. It's just another case of the batsman getting all the breaks and the bowlers being treated badly. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I mean you can take it a step further. And batsmen, you know, in the modern game, a lot of batsmen average 50 or in excess of, in excess of 50. And yet, when they reach 50, they raise their bat. I mean, that's like a, it's like a fast bat, like a bowler raising, their bat, uh, raising the bowler after getting two wickets. So it's just uh, one of those quirks of the game, I suppose. Maybe it's something that the bowlers should think about doing. Maybe when they get three wickets, they just hold the ball up briefly like uh, <laughs> to the crowd. Well, a lot of bowlers average, what, 30, 30 runs per wicket, 25 to 30 runs per wicket. So to get three wickets, it would be like getting 75 to 90 runs. So uh, the three-four is very underrated in my opinion. <laughs> Definitely, I agree. Hey, Jason, I was wondering if I could take you back, right back to the start. Um, and I was reading in your book how um, I think you had a bit of a growth spurt between the ages of 15 and 16, had a few injuries, were, were, play, were playing a little bit more as a batsman. 
But then playing, I think, D grade for Adelaide, you took eight for 38 when you were a 16-year-old. Was that a, a major moment in your early career? Yeah, I remember that game very well. We played at uh, Jack Fox Oval, uh, I think the Somerton Park in Adelaide's uh, inner southwest. And uh, I remember about 34 overs straight that day. Um, wow. And got eight for 38. My, my good mate, Paul Amato, uh, who was uh, the wicketkeeper, still tells everyone that he got a stumping off me that day because he kept up to the stumps. Um <laughs> Oh, it was a genuine medium pace. I had a big long run up. I thought I was a fast bowler, but the brutal reality was I was, I was a little medium pacer. And and I suppose it wasn't too long after that where you know I, I had to change the perception of what people saw compared to what I I could see. You know, I, I remember saying to people that I, I wanted to be a bat and out fast bowler and to play for South Australia, play for Australia. And I got ribbed a little bit at, at my local club, Adelaide, um, in a good way. The boys just got stuck into me a little bit and said, yeah, in your dreams, mate. And, but, you know, while all that gentle ribbing and a bit, bit of banter was, was all well and good, it actually lit a bit of a spark in me because everyone else couldn't see or didn't see what I felt and could see in my mind. I felt that I could, that I could be a fast bowler, but it was clear... I wasn't doing the things required, so I had to change. Uh, I, I had a choice to make, uh, and my choice, I, I could either continue doing what I was doing, which was just tiptoeing in through the tulips and just bowling little dibbly double medium paces, or I could actually get serious and, and start going harder and training harder and bowling faster and, and you know, and, and really set down a marker and... Uh, yeah, and that, that, those moments, you know, where I look back on my career and, you know, they were really important, uh, important time of my of my career for sure. And it was actually one net session, wasn't it, where you actually took your marker back yeah. and came in really fast for the first time. Was that an exhilarating experience? Yeah, yeah I mean, I just ran in and bowled as quick as I could. I remember after that training session, I was I was hurting like hell. I was so sore from bowling fast. I I knew, well, this is a new reality. If I want to bowl fast, I've got to, I've got to find a way to do it. And I remember going home and putting on my running shoes and going for a big run and doing push-ups and sit-ups in front of the TV. And, you know, that, that started me on, on my way, really. And actually, the, the coach saw you there and you, you went straight from C grade to A grade on the basis of that net session. Yeah, I, I got one for 40-odd off eight overs in the C grade, in the thirds. And... Uh, and then it turned out, it was the end of the season and, you know, the A-grade were out of contention for finals and I thought, and I think the captain just thought, well, we've got nothing to lose, let's give the young fella a crack and see how he goes. And, and I remember my dad, who was involved in the club at the time, was actually saying, look, it's too early, you know, I, I don't agree with this decision that, you know, Jason's not ready to play A-grade cricket. And uh, and then I bowled my first over, I'd won for none after one over and, Dad turned to my mum and said, "That's it. I'm not. I'm not saying anything anymore. Uh, I don't know enough about this game." Um, so he was, uh, yeah, he was a real smile man. He, he, he knew where uh, where to draw the line, and uh, yeah. So it was. It was. I finished with two for seventy odd off twenty overs, and it was a, a you know a reasonable start to my A grade career there. Um, and then went back and played finals in the C grade that season, and uh, we managed to managed to win a flag, which was which was really nice.
So that's the genesis of Jason Gillespie, the fast bowler. I mean, I remember when you burst onto the scene for Australia, and, and I remember that seven for 37 at Headingley in 1997 as being uh, really when you just rose to prominence, uh, you know, with fans. And uh, what was it like from your point of view? Was there a moment playing test cricket where you sort of felt like you belonged? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, Andrew, because it's... I, because I'd had so many injuries, I was in and out for you know a long time, the first half of my career specifically. I, I never felt quite settled. And, you know, I, I always felt I was having to prove myself. And, you know, and uh, it's hard to pinpoint an actual time when I, when I genuinely felt. I mean, you mentioned the 7 for 37. Um, even then, I mean, you know, you, you look back on that footage and, you know, I got a bit lucky that game. Yeah, I, I bowled quickly. You know, I was bowling down the hill at Headingley and, you know, Ian Healy was very kind and say he was one of the fastest spells he kept to, and, and that, that was all very nice of him. But, you know, the the, the conditions were in our favour. You know, it was a green wicket. There was a bit of overhead, so there was a bit of bit of movement in the air, and, and I did get lucky. I mean, I remember John Crawley clipped that off his toes, and it hit Greg Willard on the toe at short leg, bounced up, and he caught it. Um, you, you know things are going your way when, when you borrow a leg stump half volley and short leg takes a catch, so... Um, you know, I, I kind of still kind of felt that I was just um, still finding my feet. Um, so was it a few years later? Was it a few years later when you and McGrath and, you know, Kasparich and Lee formed this sort of cartel that you really felt like you belonged? Yeah, once I was back after, you know, I broke my leg in Sri Lanka in 99 and then had, had a year out rehabbing and, and coming back into the side and, I suppose the faith that the selectors shown in me as soon as I, you know, got some overs under my belt at state level, you know, I was straight back into the Australian fold. So, you know, that that was a nice vote of confidence, I suppose. And, and I suppose it just went from there, really. And, you know, I went through a phase of, you know, a, a real period, strong period in my career where, I, you know, I hardly got injured. And, you know, that, that was... Uh, it was a great time to to be representing um, our country. Yeah, I don't think it's any coincidence that your full fitness actually helped Australia, you know, through that dominant period. I mean, it was just uh, unbelievable. Uh, what, what about playing with McGrath and Warren? You know, you talk about feeling like you belong. I can imagine, you know, playing with two absolute giants of the game must be great. But it also, I don't know, did it bring out feelings of insecurity? No, not at all. I... Uh, I loved it because uh, I, I always felt that I was on a chance to get to wish it because, uh, you know, it's, Glenn, was, Glenn and Shane, those two specifically, were, were, were bowlers that could attack and defend at the same time. Very unique in that sense. You know, they could, they could keep the run rate in check but also have low strike rates. So, you know, that, they, were, they were always a threat. I mean, they're legends of the game and... You know, look, I knew, I knew my role on the side. I'd, I'd bowl whichever end Glenn didn't want to bowl with, with the new ball. And, um, you know, I just did my job there. And, and then I tended to bowl a lot at the other end of Warney because it just it seemed that with my follow-through, um, you know, and, and I was quite heavy on my feet, I, I created some, some good rough for the for the king to uh, work with. So he, he didn't mind it if I bowled at the other end to uh, where he bowled. With, with Shane Warne, I'm just interested in that, that 99 tour of the West Indies after the third test where Lara played the amazing innings and, and the Windies got the, the win by one run and you and McGrath bowled a million overs between you and you got um, a bit of an injury and 
then Warren didn't get picked in that fourth test, which was highly, well, has subsequently become highly controversial. At the time, what was the playing group's viewpoint on, on the fact that Warren was being omitted? It wasn't a complete shock um, in that sense. I mean, it was obviously, you know, disappointed for Shane because, you know, obviously had been a great player up to that point. I, you know, you, you could argue in hindsight it was probably a, a good decision because it just, you know, Shane was, was battered. Uh, he's disappointed being left out, but, you know, it made him kind of go, you know what, I'm going to prove you guys wrong. And, you know, and look, he, he'd had some injuries and, you know, his shoulder, um, you know, he'd had some shoulder problems and, you know, he's coming back from that. He probably wasn't bowling at his very best and I think everyone understood that. Um, and it was the, the fourth test of the series. I think the selectors must have felt, you know, that maybe just give give the big fella a spell and, and, you know, I know there was a World Cup that followed that in England. And, you know, we all know how well he did in that World Cup. And, you know, it was probably a bit of a dent to Shane's ego that, that he was dropped. But, look, it was, you know, it was just one of those things that happens. You know, we, we all understand selection. You know, it uh, can be disappointing um, at times. But, you know, we, we have to respect the process and, you know, that it's not easy It's not easy for the people that are in charge to to make those kind of decisions. And you can imagine how tough that would have been for for Steve War, Jeff Bash and, and Co, you know, with the you know, with Shane Warren being who he who he is and uh, who he was, that making that big call, you know, um, it would have been very tough for them. Absolutely. You played under three different um, captains during your career. Uh, the first one, Mark Taylor, uh, I was interested in your book that when he was under a fair bit of scrutiny in ninety seven for his um, poor form I'd always thought that there was a feeling amongst the players that, you know, he'll come good and that was okay. But when he, I think there was the, the second test in South Africa where it was a green top, yet they still went with Bevan at seven with the, the viewpoint that they were bolstering the batting because Taylor wasn't um, going so well. You talked about there was a bit of a surprise amongst the team. Was, was there any feeling that he was getting a charmed life and that maybe another player would have been dropped by now? Uh, look, uh, look, uh, look uh, I can only speak for myself, but uh, my, my only thing was... I'm just looking at the surface and what the South African team, they had that four seamers and Jacques Callas. So, you know, we go in with two seamers, Greg Blewett and um, two spinners. So one team read the, read the conditions very wrong. Um, or, <laughs> um, I mean, look, you could argue that we read it perfectly because we won the game. But, but look, it was, it was pretty obvious that, you know, it was a seam-friendly surface. So tell me about the three captains you played under. Three greats of the game, Taylor, Steve Waugh, and then finish with Ricky Ponting. Which one of those did you kind of gel the best with? Look, it's a, it's a really tough question because, you know, they, they all had great attributes and I, I played under each of them at different stages of my career. So it was really tough. I, I think I always see Mark Taylor and his captaincy. I, I kind of look at that through rose-coloured glasses a little bit because you know I, I felt really supported and really backed as a as a youngster. And I, I remember a specific game in Perth where the night before had been smacked all over the park by England, and I think I'd gone for about seventy runs off nine overs. And and the next morning, Tubby threw me the ball, and and um, he said, "Mate, your, your body's because I'd had some injuries and that." He said, "Mate, your body's good. You've done all the work. Just go out here. Just go out and bowl fast, mate." And and he said, mate, I believe in you. And, and that was a real, uh, really nice moment. I, I felt like a million bucks. I felt like I could run through a brick wall. And, and I ran in and I ended up picking up five quick wickets, which was nice. So, you know, that support, you know, I always felt that. 
I mean, I, I always felt the support of all the captains, um, but in different ways. You know, Steve, when he when he got the job as captain, again, he just he just believed in what I what I brought to the team and and what I could do for the team, and just has supported me wholeheartedly. And then and then that filtered on when Ricky became captain as well. And you know, probably the only time I, I felt that I wasn't uh, getting backed and supported, and rightly so, was when we played in England in 05 and, and I was bowling poorly, um, you know, and, and I knew I was, uh, I was on borrowed time and, you know, we, we, we played the test match at Manchester and, um, and I, I'd bowled, it, I'd look up at the scoreboard and we bowled about 50 or 60 overs and I'd bowled four overs for a 20 odd and, and I just knew that the captain, had, you know, Ricky, had lost a bit of confidence in me and it was fair enough because I actually wasn't bowling that well, so... That was I knew I was probably going to have a bit of a spell out of the team and wondering whether my career was going to be uh, as an Australian player was over. But um, but yeah, but look, all, all captains were all brilliant. Um, Adam Gilchrist captained Australia for three tests in India in '04 and thought you know he did a great job. You know, considering he was behind the stumps and but we had a specific game plan to bowl at the stumps that that series, which. Um, is a bit different in India because most teams like to stay away from Indians, uh, Indian batters' pads because they, they're so strong through the leg side. But we thought we'd block up the leg side and attack the stumps. And, and Gilly actually said he, he hardly felt in the game that series because we were so accurate in bowling out the stumps. He never felt he was in in the frame for a catch behind the wicket. So, um, yeah, so it was a yeah different way. But, but yeah, as for all the captains, I thought... You know, they were all fantastic. I, I felt well supported um, as an individual. And I thought the way they they led the team, uh, led their respective teams, I thought was absolutely outstanding. That 2004 series in India, I suppose, double-barrel question, was that the highlight of your career? And do you think it's a concern that in all the years since, Australia still hasn't been able to win in India again? Yeah, it's certainly up there for, uh, in terms of highlight of my career uh, to... To win in India, we hadn't won there in 30 odd years, 35 years. So it was a pretty special, uh, pretty special tour, and it was special because we we put away our egos a little bit on that tour, uh, particularly as a bowling unit. We we knew that for us to succeed in India, we could not just assume that we'd go there and bowl like we do everywhere else in the world, whether it be Australia, South Africa, or England, and expect that you know uh, we'll take wickets. You know we had to be adapt to the conditions. We had to try something different because it hadn't worked in the past. Um, so we, you know, we, as I touched on just before, we, we spoke about really attacking the stumps, which does in a way play to Indians' strengths. But then we thought if we have, have some um, catching, catching uh, fielders on the leg side as well as a couple of defensive fielders on the rope and attack those stumps. So even if they do get the ball through the field, they're only getting one. And that would frustrate the Indians who like to hit boundaries in those hot conditions. We wanted to back our fitness. We thought we can just keep running in all day here. They're going to have to bat for long periods and be patient and run hard for themselves and their teammates because they're not going to hit the boundaries that they're used to hitting. And um, so, yeah, that was a... To, to be able to formulate a plan and implement it and, and implement it so well to win a series uh, in, in India was, was very satisfying. Any other sort of uh, memories in particular that stand out of your playing days? You know, when you look back at your career, what sort of jumps out at you? The, the best memories I have. Uh, I, I enjoyed, I, I love being in the battle, bowling 
to great players. So I enjoyed all those battles. Um, but I, I enjoyed the feeling of sitting in the change rooms after a game and with a win under our belt. You know, look, I, look, I, I admit I was very much... Um, Test cricket was very much my favourite form of the game by a long way. I absolutely loved it. So most of my great memories, you know, look, I've got some great memories playing one days and, and and the like for Australia. But but certainly, you know, all my fondest memories are playing Test cricket, and you know, most certainly just that those times in the dressing room, sitting there with the lads, the music, a little bit of music on, just just kicking back and and reminiscing about the the, the five days that we've just had. Uh, uh, some of the, the fondest memories I have. Suffering through Steve Waugh's terrible taste in music. Look, <laughs> uh, like it, was, it wasn't actually that bad. I mean, you know, when you're on a high of a win, you know, you tend to get into a bit of John Williamson, don't you? <laughs> but, um, bit of True Blue. But, nah, look, look, look yeah, well, well, we always knew that once True Blue came onto the beat box, you knew you were only, you know, five minutes away from um, singing the team song, and singing the team song was a highlight. And that could have been sung anywhere from three hours after play to eight hours after play, <laughs> just depending on the mood of the dressing room and, you know, if we've got family and friends coming in and, you know, it, like, just a, yeah, just a wonderful time, really. Just last question on your playing career. Uh, you know, you, you battled injuries for a long time and, you know, I just wonder now when you see a young fast bowler who's sort of riddled with injuries like a Jason Barrendorf at the moment, what, what's your advice to them on how to get through it? Look, uh, it's, it's, it's purely about focusing on what you need to do to get yourself better, you know, rather than you know, think about what's happened because, I mean, that's happened. You can't change it. Um, we don't know what's going to happen in a year's time. Uh, so there's no point worrying about that. It's just about worrying about the moment now. Have a plan and stick to that plan. The plan is to, you know, break down your your rehab period into days, uh, weeks, months, whatever it is. Break it down and then just focus on nailing that as best you can. And and if you know that, you give yourself the best chance. I, I was a big believer if you if you just go in and do all that, you know, prepare yourself as well as you can physically. In a way, you are mentally preparing yourself for what lies ahead um, because you're giving yourself the best chance to be successful. I always live by a bit of a saying, all you can do is all you can do. And all you can do is, you know, is all you can. You can't do any more than give everything your best. So, you know, I sort of stick to that mantra and, um, you know, it's kind of helped me in good stead. And, you know, and I, I like to think that, you know, players that, that, that struggle, you know, with illness or injury, if you just focus on what's going to allow you to get better, and then and then just nail that process and um, and tick those boxes and just chip away, and then things will be all right. And what will be will be. Well, Jason, you have been so generous with you, with your time. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You know, we loved watching you play, and uh, you know, we love what you've done since you stopped playing. And it yeah, it's just great to talk to you. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to talk to you, boys. That's it for this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks so much to Jason Gillespie for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute thrill to have him on. You can get in touch with us at Oz Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll be back soon with another show. Podcast Network.